Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast this is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle the people that make it and occasionally ourselves i am camille foster i do various things at a place called freethink i'm delighted to be here this is a very unusual for us weekend recording it is saturday afternoon i am seated directly next to matt welch who's the editor-at-large of reason magazine uh, michael moynihan national correspondent for vice news tonight which airs on hbo and he is not here. He was did, supposed to did be. Did he get fired? Um, he canceled on us like five minutes before we got going here. I mean, literally five minutes. Before so we, we could got fire going. him for yeah. this. <laughs> I don't know. Gonna, we're going to have to do something about it. Um, but here, trusty, reliable, steadfast politics editor at The Week. No, 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 no more. that's wrong. Wow, that's really. Wrong. I knew that. You do this to humiliate him. I knew that's, that. So it's just like a Donald no, he, Trump situation. He broke. He broke up with her. I got three kids. So he I'm broke up all day. He broke up with her. No politics editor at Insider. Insider. Anthony Fisher here, gravelly voice, sultry baritone. Gentlemen, how the hell are you? I'm just wondering, I'm trying to remember if I can moonwalk or not and whether that's going to come into play. Have you, do you <laughs> Camille, did, did you ever moonwalk? Um, no, and that's racist. It's racist to ask, <laughs> not. to suggest that it's possible. It's not. Um, I certainly can't moonwalk. Um, you never I like do, tried? You never like gave it a... I, I do sing and dance. That's and, different. That's, I'm, but I'm this, bad I'm at basketball. Totally different question. But I thought that's what you were doing. Nope. It's felt that way. You, there's a press conference that's... Uh, we're going to talk about it a little bit later. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe what I should do is introduce our guest because we do have a guest. It's Brendan O'Neill. He's the editor-in-chief <laughs> of Spiked. That's is, correct. Is, is it Spiked Online? Is it Spiked Magazine? <clears throat> I just call it Spiked. Some people call it Spiked, spiked. Online. It's Spiked Magazine. Yeah. yeah. Really I good. mean, it started off like 15 years ago, back when uh, online was a thing that people... Even split. longer. It was like 18... It was the first... Online only magazine in the United Kingdom. Is that right? The very first, or at least one. the first libertarian Marxist online, and <laughs> also the first libertarian Marxist magazine. Yeah, that's correct. Well, you're the, the second person to join us from Spiked. Yes, um, but it's it's wonderful that we finally got you here. Um, I suppose we should start by forcing you to answer the question: What the hell is a libertarian Marxist? What does that oh, mean? Oh man, the million dollar question. Yeah. It's funny because. Um, if you'd asked me that six months ago, I would have just rattled out the answer I've always rattled out, which is that it's completely not a contradiction in terms to be a libertarian and a Marxist. Because if you read Marx and Engels' early work, I'm, uh, with Marx and Engels, I'm like people are with rock bands. I prefer the early stuff. So if you read the <laughs> okay. early stuff, it was before all... Before they signed to the major labels. Before they signed to the major <laughs> horrible labels. Um, it was all a very, very liberal stuff. You know, they wanted people to be freer, to have more choice, to... They, Karl Marx's writings on press freedom in the 1840s are the best things you will ever read on press freedom. So I don't think there's a contradiction in terms. However, the thing that's different now than it would have been to six months ago is that I'm increasingly going off the word libertarian. I'm saying this sitting opposite a, a very brilliant libertarian, Matt Welsh. Um, but you I mis mispronounced Camille Foster, but go on. Uh, <laughs> He's not a cross uh, well, from me. I'm not a cross from him. That's the only reason I didn't say his name. He's catty-cornered. Um, because I think, and, I, and we may come on to this, but I think other things more interesting than libertarianism are happening in the world right now mm. in terms of 
democratic revolts and massive collective protests and things that make me think, oh, maybe that's more interesting. But mm -hmm. we can touch on that, possibly. Yeah. So you got a yellow vest out of that I'd black swag? <laughs> wow, I would love a yellow vest. I've got to get one of those. Well, I want to I wanna talk um, in particular about some of the things that are going on in Europe, um, but I also want to talk about some of the domestic matters that are happening here. There are some interesting and important domestic matters. I mean, the president has a State of the Union that he's going to be giving. I think it's Tuesday. Yep. Tuesday it's been rescheduled for Tuesday night. Um, he's still threatening to potentially use some sort of emergency action, a declaration of emergency in order to finish building the wall. Um, but most of the stuff that's going on on the domestic landscape that is at the forefront of people's mind is standard race controversy. You have some kind of race controversy every single weekend. There's a different one. Um, and we've actually had two this past week. One is the guy from Empire who was standing outside in Chicago on one of the coldest nights of the year at around two o'clock in the morning, decided he needed a Subway sandwich steps outside or something to take a call with his manager again two o'clock in the morning coldest night of the year and is reportedly assaulted by two men um, who scream about MAGA country um, they actually ask him if he is the homosexual from Empire because white guys who presumably white guys who are MAGA supporters and who beat people up on the street and carry nooses watch a lot of Empire maybe they assaulted him and poured some sort of fluid on him, giving a bunch of backstory because this is kind of an extraordinary story. It's extraordinary in the sense that, like, if you get assaulted by people and someone puts a noose around your neck in 2019, it's a huge deal. And if it pours, happens pours in an American city, yeah, yeah, in Chicago, quite frankly, which is not MAGA country. And they were masked. Mm -hmm. It's really cold, so it makes sense that they were masked up um, and coded and all that other stuff. Um, but... The details about what happened there are still somewhat sketchy in the sense that there doesn't seem to be a lot of video evidence or anything like that. No, there is a lot of video evidence. There's well, a lot of video. There is a lot, a lot of video, of but not a lot of video indicating what happened there. And I'm, I'm pointing to all of this not because I know for a fact that nothing happened. Um, I'm pointing to all of this because there's a lot of, sort of condemnations, and rightly so, of what is reported to have happened. But there doesn't seem to be much in the way of just patience, like a willingness to wait to figure out what the hell happened. And considering that, what is it, like a week ago, week and a half ago that the Covington thing happened with the, with the uh, Women's March and the Indigenous People's March and those Catholic school kids, like everyone got that wrong. And they leapt on it immediately. And I suppose the big question is, why would someone make something like this up? And the answer is, I have no idea. It doesn't matter. In this particular case, like there, there are reasons to be at least somewhat suspicious because it's extraordinary. The claim is extraordinary. It would be extraordinary if it was a nice summer day in Chicago and this happened to you. It is even more extraordinary when it is the dead of winter in January in Chicago and folks are out at two o'clock in the morning with nooses. I just want to hear. I, I want to live in a, a city where the subways open at two a.m. That's not, <laughs> not the actual like transit. <laughs> option cold cut places because uh, how, how often do you go to subway i'm going to confess my uh, unpopular uh sandwiching behavior here when i take the train down to dc 
That's all right. Because I mean, I was going to say you live in an Italian neighborhood. No, no, no. I would never do that. Possibly. (laughs) No, if you're if you've got 25 minutes to kill in Penn Station, yeah, right, and you know you you have to go during lunch. I'll allow. You don't want you don't want that Amtrak cheeseburger. (laughs) Okay, sometimes you do. (laughs) That microwave makes the cheese just. No, uh, it's a. I think we talked about this the last time that we were talking about the Covington thing. The uh, interesting and really worrying end of the Covington uh, saga was that people after all the evidence had come in, mm-hmm. just doubled down on the original thing um, and so said... Not, not everyone. Lots of people no, apologized no, and, and walked it back and... No, uh, yeah. correct. Uh, but a lot of people, way too many people, way too mm-hmm. many people call themselves journalists. Right. Um, like, either said it didn't, doesn't matter. I know what I saw with my own eyes and I saw a smirking kid with a MAGA hat and that and that's all you need to know because it's the same thing as a hood, uh, a hood, who knew that that would be right back in the news five days later. Uh, but it, it expressed a willingness to say uh, my feelings don't care about facts or whatever, the inversion of the of Ben mm-hmm. Shapiro thing. So it was kind of a, <laughs> a precursor to this. And you saw in the first days of this attack on Empire, and these are the first uh, you know things I have said publicly about this attack, you know, our text to each other uh, constantly, uh, notwithstanding, <laughs> thank God are not public. Uh, but uh, uh, You are inviting someone to hack someone's iMessage I account. Russia, if you're out there. No, no, uh, seriously, don't tempt them. Uh, but like I saw, again, journalists getting mad at people expressing the desire to maybe slow down because the details of this are really, really, really extraordinary. And there's a history of hoaxes like this uh, in the recent past, a rich history of hoaxes like this. Uh, So let's just like slow down and wait for it to happen. That wasn't the people like, you know, I see what you're doing. You know, why don't you slow your roll? This kind of thing. It's uh, this bizarre desire among people to uh, referee people's reactions uh, to this in a uh, journalistic setting, even though the journalistic thing to do is to fucking sit on your hands and wait for anything to be corroborated. Brendan, I don't know if you watch Empire. Mm. Are you a fan of this? I don't watch Empire. But But have you seen this story? Are you at all familiar with what's happening? Yeah, I'm familiar with this. I'm familiar with Empire. I just don't watch it. Uh, (laughs) I'm also suspicious of Uh this. Um, Not in the sense that I think this guy is a liar or I think that it's not possible for this kind of thing to happen of course it is entirely but so much of it has uh, it's been so speedily uh, weaved into a narrative um, about Trump's America about the nature of people who support Trump about the kind of bad people who exist in America the deplorables and so on so the the speed with which it has become part of an already existing narrative mm-hmm. about wicked Americans and the terrible things they do instantly makes me think well that's very convenient and also as you say it's an incredibly if this happened it would be a very strange rare unusual event so uh, the journalistic response at least ought to be one of caution and waiting for evidence and waiting to find out a few more facts or to see a few more things before you rush to judgment. The reason I think people haven't done that is because it's such a good story for what they already think. Hmm. And so it's it's become instantly part of this um, kind of um, political story about uh, you know the good, liberal, decent, um, identitarian groups in society who are under attack from those wicked, masked, you know, MAGA-wearing sections of society who are pure evil. So all of that makes me think, mm, I want some more facts before I'm willing to buy into any aspect of that narrative. In, in terms of why someone would make this up, and I'm not saying that he has at all, mm-hmm. but in terms of what, but people have made things up, that's for sure, in the past, sure. in relation to other events. 
I think uh, one of the great drivers of of that is it's very rewarding. It's socially and and politically rewarding these days to be a victim. It's 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 how it, there's a great deal of social capital attached Absolutely. to being a victim of hatred and discrimination and abuse and everything else. And it's almost like victim status is coveted by many sections of society, including people who actually, um, like him, are uh, actually quite comfortable, have a nice role in life, presumably make a fairly good wage. Uh, even among that section of society, even among the celebrity class, there is this desire to be seen as a victim because that's how you win kind of cachet and that's how you make an impact. So... Um, it, the reason people make these things up, I think, is tied to the value that we now ascribe to victimhood in the way that we might pre previously have ascribed value to being autonomous and strong-willed and independent and everything else. Mm -hmm. So there is so the two things that make me suspicious is that there is a drive in society to invite people to define themselves as victims and the way in which it was weaved into this kind of anti-Trump narrative in a very speedy way, both of those things make me think, okay, I at least want more information before I'm going to make a final judgment on whether or not this happened in the way it's been described. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the uh, interesting parts about that victim mentality, and it's something that we've noted at Reason for a long time, 15 years even, but it's really, I think, accelerated recently. The people who've made that point that you just made, uh, for the most part, have been on the right or the center right or or, uh, or libertarians. Uh, but now there's a hell of a lot of people on the right embracing it too. Like victim victimology, I mean, that's now kind of Tucker Carlson's shtick, right? Like he's talking about people who've been on the receiving end of all of this, uh, you know, elite bad people uh, activity out there. And there's, uh, I would uh, commend Stephanie Slade uh, wrote a piece about this at, uh, at Reason four or five days ago, saying that's, that, that was her main critique of his recent turn is that, hey, you're kind of in embracing or inviting this victimhood mentality, which is not empowering, ultimately, regardless of who you are. Um, I don't think it is. It is. Is it an empowering thing to uh, sit around and, uh, you know, kind of uh, elevate uh, your victim status uh, compared to pe even when you are an actual victim, it's not empowering to over uh, dwell on your victimization, I don't think. It kind of depends, though, doesn't it? Sure. I mean, it depends on the way other people respond to it. When it becomes the ultimate trump card, for example, in a conversation, in a debate. Language. <laughs> <laughs> when it becomes the, the incontrovertible proof of your trustworthiness, of your fitness to have an opinion on a particular topic, on a range of topics, and quite frankly, in another respect, if it is the most fundamental piece of evidence about your defectiveness, which I think is almost certainly more the case these days, well, that is what you would think. You are a white man. Spell it out in plain English as if I'm stupid. I think the identity politics stuff around which a lot of the victim narratives revolve, I think it is directly related to, to the same way that they sort of castigate white men and talk about the downtroddenness of particular groups and the need to do things to elevate them, the need to protect them, the fact that we have to trust, believe, accept any assertion that, oh, well, what happened to me was racist. The fact that these are, these are subjective assessments don't matter anymore. The only thing that matters, the only thing that actually has any currency is your status as a victim. So it may not be personally empowering in a psychic sense. Maybe you feel bad more often, but 
in a political sense, in every sense that matters and anything that's kind of measurable, claiming that status, that position for yourself becomes incredibly valuable. You would have been proud of me uh, this morning, Camille. I was on uh, MSNBC. We were talking about the Northam uh, business, uh, Governor of Virginia. There was a a photo in his medical school yearbook when he was 24 years old back in 1984 um, that showed two people, one person in uh, blackface, Mm -hmm. comical, kind of like 1920s uh, style, I think. Like actual blackface. Super duper blackface. And uh, standing next to somebody in a Klan hood. Right. Um, And there wasn't a lot of explanation, I don't think, in the... the, uh, in the um, in the caption, and so we're uh, batting this around this morning, and we're do- taping this on Saturday. In fact, we're taping this 30 minutes after <laughs> Northam's press conference, in which he almost moonwalked, uh, uh, wrapped up. So uh, there's a lot. Who knows what what fresh hell awaits us by the time this thing comes out? But um, uh, I mentioned that it would be nice to know his intent. Assuming that he's that he's now denying that he was in the picture, so right, that right. scrambles it all. But uh, people got super mad at me, as they always do on the Twitter. Like it, his intent doesn't matter. But I was I was channeling the Camille thing. Like it's totally possible sure. that he thought that he was telling a joke. I mean, it looks like a joke. The whole thing yeah, looks yeah, like uh, yeah. Blazing Saddles. You know, yeah. where all the white women at. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's even plausible just because this is in Virginia, and Virginia is some kind of fucked up place. Camille, maybe you know more about it than I do. Yeah. Um, but it's plausible to imagine that it was even a joke that was aimed to show his own wokeness, like a joke against mm-hmm. the perceived, you know, what people perceive. Well, who knows? But right. like the intent matters and, and people wanted to cut that off the knees and say the intent doesn't matter. The, it's just racist. And that's the only thing that matters. I mean, the, the intent matters. But even in the worst case scenario, right, maybe he was racist at the time. Maybe he had a lot of retrograde ideas back then. Um, and was prone to say dastardly things and do dastardly things. Um, if he has a history of this, it's consequential. But if his recent history suggests something else, if he has, as many Americans have, and hopefully more Americans will, evolved on these issues, which clearly he has, sharing a stage with Barack Obama and holding hands with him, that sort of thing, isn't that what we want? The, the thing about the controversy that bothers me, like set aside the weirdo press conference where he makes claims about whether or not it's him in it or walks it back and it's confusing and at a minimum, it's hard to believe. Set that aside for a moment. The fact that you can't be forgiven, that there can't be redemption and we will never forget, there's, there's something like super creepy and insidious about that. And as someone who has... I, I was an evangelical Christian in college. I was a member of a Christian fraternity whose bylaws made it impossible for a homosexual to be a member of said fraternity. And they, that was at a public university, right? This was at a public university, yeah. They're still there. They're still on campus. Um, I resigned from it formally. No um, I still have friends who are members of this organization. When and why did you resign? I resigned because I, I no longer had those particular, I didn't share the same faith beliefs, but one of the specific explicit reasons was because of these tenants. Like the, the notion- you, pre- you repudiated your own homophobia? Well, yeah, that's, that's anti-Jamaican. <laughs> it is actually, which is very sad. But there's, I mean, I think there's two things here. One is there's something about having a sufficient amount of sort of grace allowing people to evolve that is absolutely necessary if we want to live in a better world. But I think there's something else. There's something about like being the reason that's important, anyways, is because you also want to be somewhat 
pragmatic in the way that you approach trying to change people's views on issues like this. But I, I, the other thing that strikes me about that particular scandal is the <clears throat> is what Freddie DeBoer once referred to as offense archaeology, where you're mm. constantly digging in people's past for yes. proof that they did something bad or said something bad or dressed in a particular way, which I just think is 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 a really depressing aspect of modern culture. It's like you can't quite pin them on anything today so you go digging and digging and digging until you find the photo or the comment or the tweet in relation to someone like kevin hart for example uh, I, I think that's a really bitter vindictive nasty way of doing politics and it's incredibly fatalistic camille as you say because the the um the suggestion is always that people can't really change so mm -hmm. if he dressed in a clan outfit which it seems to me to be utterly inconceivable that he was doing that for any other reason than it was fancy dress or jokey the idea that in my mind any Anyway, the idea that he was dressing as a clan person because he had clan views seems completely unsustainable. Um, but it's this idea that even if he were, even if he did have dodgy views, even if he did put on an outfit that he shouldn't have put on, that that then colours him today and everything he says and, and casts this long shadow over his life. I find uh, uh, that's one of the worst features about whatever we want to call it, political correctness or whatever it's called, which is this, it's unforgiving nature. It's mm -hmm. kind of, it's ruthless nature. And it replaces the kind of, you know, the, the fixed ideology of racism, which is the idea that you're born a particular way and that's what you are, Yeah. now gets kind of rehabilitated in the supposed um, language of anti-racism, which is that if you have these views or if you did this thing or if you said this thing, that's you forever. That's you. That's that, that's you defined. And there's very little you can do to um, make up for that apart from maybe flagellate in public and issue groveling apologies for the rest of your life. So um, I, I, I find those kind of scandals, we've had loads of them in the UK as well, where, you know, a, a tweet or something has been uncovered from seven years ago or a, a fancy dress costume from 20 years ago. I just think it's a complete waste of everyone's energy to yeah, be but digging for that. What stuff. is the fancy dress offense? Because <laughs> it's got to be super funny because it's British. Um, well, in Britain, um, uh, on campuses, fancy dress parties have been actually been banned on the basis that um, the costumes might be... There was a, at Cambridge University, they banned an around-the-world-in-80-days 80 fancy dress party because they feared that students would turn up dressed as, I don't know, Native Americans or um, African tribes people. Yeah, so they yeah. preemptively banned it on the basis that some of the costumes would be offensive. The most famous case in the UK, of course, is Prince Harry, mm. who once went to a fancy dress party dressed as a Nazi. Mm -hmm. And everyone went crazy, not realising that the point of a fancy dress party is that you dress in a way that you wouldn't normally dress. Right. So if, if Prince Harry went to a party dressed as a Nazi which he did, then that probably suggests he's not really a Nazi. Were they known for being, these parties like known for being transgressive, like people pushing boundaries? Yeah, people go, you know, in Britain we have this phenomenon called the the, um, the vicar and prostitute party where people some people go dressed as vicars and the women go dressed as it's a very do you strange, guys know do you guys know what a very strange up. english thing everybody knows what a vicar is <laughs> what's a vicar it's like a, it's a priest <laughs> for <laughs> the church of england types and not a real priest as my parents would say from their catholic I, I just i just hear like dr seuss stuff when i hear vicar <laughs> yeah vicar of vip uh, but it's like um i just but the, you know that that kind of um the excavation for dirt I yeah. just find so unappealing and horrible and I just wish more people who are victims of that would come out and say well screw you I, 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 who cares what I did 
I would have liked to see that as well. I would certainly like to see it for more of these like 16-year-old kids. The ba- like there yeah, was the yeah. baseball guy yeah. um, not too long ago who, you know I don't watch that sport. I'm, I'm looking yeah, at you and I'm gesturing at yeah. I'm Fisher, you also watch baseball. There's, I do. There am I a, wrong? There was a baseball guy that had like 16 years old. Yeah, he was he was a teenager. This is what Josh you guys right. this is what you guys do in the newsroom, isn't it, Fisher? Like as soon as someone like becomes important, I, you over at Insider yeah. look at one of your younglings and you say, Hey, Dude, go mine his Twitter all, archive. It's all Andrew Shitkinski or whatever the fuck his name is at CNN. He really I'm I'm much more forgiving of people's past <laughs> because people, people people are allowed to have pasts. Uh, but uh, in this particular case, it was Josh Hader, Milwaukee Brewers, ah. um, and he was he was 24 last summer. So I guess he probably was about 17 when he's his tweets, some of which were like jokes, like that even the people that he was tweeting at came to his defense yeah. and said these were jokes. We're friends. We we um, we 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 would just say crazy stuff to each other because right. we were in high school. And kids kids saying crazy yeah. stuff is is not insane. But the, here's here's my question for you, Brennan. Is that and and perhaps Camille. Like I get that, and I think that that archaeology business is is gross. I mean, it's just oppo research on your fellow humans mm. uh, on some level, and it's it's bad. It's all kind of come for us if it hasn't gotten to us already. Um, do you make a category difference for powerful politicians? Like if Jeremy Corbyn actually was dressing up like a Nazi um, for, for because he's a total Nazi. Um, is that something that we should know? Like, is is this, and mm. Camille, I mean, is, is the existence of this yearbook photo um, something that voters should have known? It's something you can know. It's something that if someone decides to report on it, fine. You know, this is part of the public record. But I, I do think we ought to put these <laughs> things in perspective and context, and we ought to care about whether or not there was malicious intent there. And I think that's the issue. It's less than an incuriousness because Mm -hmm. as we've seen in certain circumstances, even when you find out that they didn't mean it in that particular way, that that Whoopi Goldberg and uh, Ted Ted Danson were actually dating and they both showed up in blackface and she said she thought it was quote, fucking funny. Well, she actually said she wrote the whole bit. But she wrote- Is that right? At the time she said she wrote Every line I had no idea. Yeah. 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 But I mean, it's gotten to the point where it's it's nearly always these technical infractions. Like you've said something that kind of sounds dirty. You said the wrong thing and you're the wrong pigment to be able to say that thing. So sorry, you have to go away forever and ever. And it, it actually trivializes the genuinely bad things that happen because you have to try to disentangle the genuinely bad things from the things that aren't actually bad at all in any sort of meaningful sense. But isn't the malicious intent really among Northam's critics? Because he's pro-choice, right? That's one of the things that well, he was like about him. He, there was, a, there was another big controversy that. earlier this week. Yeah, in yeah. relation to the infanticide. That's why this was this dug up by Patrick Howley, who is like a dirt digger, right journalist. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. He's, the right he's, K- he's the right-wing yeah. K-file. But but, but often offense archaeology is often targeted at people who... um who people disagree with, but I don't know, they they lack the balls or, or the substance to actually disagree with them on the issue at hand. So they go digging for crap from the past in order to kind of shame them into silence. We've had a number of cases of that in the UK. There's a very famous English philosopher called Roger Scruton, um, widely considered to be the most brilliant conservative philosopher of our times. He was uh, recently brought on board by Theresa May's government to advise on housing and, and the countryside and building new buildings because he's very much into the beauty of aesthetics and so on. And people went offence um, digging 
instantly they found old articles of his in which he said things like, you know, um, gay sex is 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 strange, or or gay marriage is wrong, or whatever it else it might have been, all views that y- you could take up on their own terms. But what was happening is that those things that he expressed ten or fifteen or twenty years ago were being used against the idea that he should hold this position in the here and now. So there was a real element of it was very disingenuous. And the malicious intent, intent was not on the part of Scruton, who, who had actually in the past expressed views that he simply thought were true. It was on the part of his critics who, who couldn't confront him on the role that he was currently playing in government, but rather were trying to shame him through things he'd said in the past. And I, I think a similar thing is happening, happening with Northam because of the views that he holds now. People on the right want to kind of take him down and they've opted to do that by going through his uh, university yearbook in the same way that people on the left went through Brett Kavanagh's high school yearbook. And you just want to say, leave the yearbooks alone. You know, forget the yearbooks. People do all sorts of crazy, hmm. stupid, infantile, childish things in their yearbooks. That is not relevant to the people they are today. And we really should start, I think, taking people on face value. What do they say? What do they believe now that they're mm-hmm. 40 or 50 years old rather than when they were 18 or 20 years old? And maybe, so, uh, well, just just quickly... Joy Reid is a name that we brought up a few times, and I know you've done her show a bunch, Matt, so you're not re- required to, to say anything about this, although I'm not going to say anything bad. When Joy Reid's stuff broke and she used the just completely ridiculous excuse that you know it might have been Russian hackers, in fact, I believe that she has not yet apologized in any sort of way for, I did this, I had those bad ideas, I've changed and I've grown. Instead, it was, I don't think I ever wrote that and I wouldn't, I don't recognize those words, those aren't my values, I wouldn't do that. That is how it's been left. It I think kinda, It was like an ellipsis yeah, there. Nothing there was else. some amount I, of apology for previous views, previous blog posts that okay. are under her name. Some well, blog posts. I, I think both Joy and and the, the governor of Virginia, Grumman, it's Grumman? Northam. 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 We're Northam North, Grumman. Northrop Grumman. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> I got it. I see it. My dad is I think that both of them are kind of awful for not just owning it and acknowledging it and saying I made a mistake and I'm going to do better. Like the weird thing that's going on now, I suppose part of the dance is you're afraid for your life and you're going to be destroyed if you play this the wrong way. Um, but in both cases, I say for both people, it matters what they think now. It matters if they still hold those bad ideas. I am happy as hell anytime anyone gives up their retrograde ideas to be a good human and do good and righteous things. And I don't share their politics. That's not what's leading me to say that. Um, and I, I just think it's important for us to, to, to be willing to extend and model grace and reciprocity. And it's weird. I was having a conversation with friends. Um, we, I, I just got back from a friend's trip. We were hanging out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Amish country or Quaker country. Is there a difference between Amish yes, there and Quaker? Is. Yeah, there it is. is it is Amish country. I know that. And there's a difference. Um, we were staying in a house. Don't even get into the which is part of, uh, It was part of the Underground Railroad. Like part of the house, there's like a wall that's hollowed out where slaves ah, were so like cool. hiding down inside of it. It's it's as the woman started to explain all the details about it, it like gave me a chill. Um, but we were talking about something, and I was mentioning, you know, to the extent I'm I'm involved in you know these conversations about issues like this, I'm generally trying to point out to people the places where I think we can make a bit more progress and we can be a bit more generous to each other in discourse. Um, but in order to do it. I have to be like really careful not to make certain kinds of errors. 
So I want to be very gracious and generous to people who make mistakes. I have to, to demonstrate the reciprocity. But in practice, as I'm doing work and I'm reporting on something or developing a story or even talking about things here, I do my best to be perfect mm. so that I don't make any mistakes because it will destroy your credibility. Mm. It would be even better if I could occasionally have a mistake and apologize for it. But we just don't give one another that much room. And it's, uh, this, uh, it's I, painful. I wrote a bit about this a couple of years ago uh, uh, in connection with Rand Paul. Actually, I think he was being dragged by Andrew Shitkinski at, the, uh, at, the, at CNN uh, about the weird man's burden. If you are outside, and Tulsi Gabbard is, is actually getting a lot of that right now presidential candidate. And she's weird, so it's understandable. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also that her views are seen as beyond the pale. She just got dragged today by NBC News in a way that's not uh, bueno on first read at all. It's like you know, Russian hackers are taking an unusual interest in Tulsi Gabbard's candidacy right now um, that she's been mentioned on RT and Sputnik a lot. So, you know, mm, mm -hmm. super like a winking and nodding uh, in her direction. But if you have a collection of views that are, are odd even if they're majoritarian in America, some of them are in terms of like uh, shrinking down our uh, foreign policy uh, uh, kind of aggressiveness out there in the world. That's a pretty popular policy, uh, even though a few people in uh, elite power uh, share it. Um, you will be treated at a, in a different kind of way. Um, uh, to uh, at a different standard. And yeah. so you do have to absolutely watch everything you say. Um, and also, I think uh, it's an important thing that I, uh, especially people who self-identify as libertarians, so unlike Brendan, um, uh, have to do. We are a minority. We're always going to be a minority. Like mm. we will, we, uh, you know, there's, uh, there, there will be moments when it's like pot legalization goes from 25% support to like everybody in the world, except for one asshole Kennedy is, uh, you know, in favor of uh, pot legalization now. Um, I mean, it's redundant, but, um, uh, <laughs> so there are moments when we like suddenly break through, but generally speaking, we're the idiots saying like, yeah, legalize prostitution and heroin, um, or whatever, cut the government in half. Nobody like, so or you, gay marriage 25 years ago, gay marriage 10 years ago, yeah. um, before, you know, Joe Biden, uh, delivered us, uh, uh, from that, but like, <laughs> so you have to, you have to, as a pragmatic thing, you have to get people uh, to get on your side, and to do that, you can't shoot them in the face mm. because uh, at every moment that they the, they change their views on this. But right? it's like throughout history, it's 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 always been the eccentric thinkers who have propelled society forward, and that's why the thing you mm -hmm. described, Camille, which I think everyone feels very strongly today, which is. I've got to be super careful or I don't want to trip up on my words or I don't want to say something I didn't intend to say because I'll be destroyed uh -huh. by the mob or I'll be shamed or, or everyone feels that. I feel that a lot because, you know, the instinct to misrepresentation is so strong. The instinct to destroy someone's reputation is so strong these days because of the kind of mob-like culture that exists. But, uh, uh, but the downside to that is that people can become unadventurous in what they say and yeah. and risk averse yeah. and it's one of the great points john stuart mill makes in in on liberty he talks mm. very much about the importance of eccentricity to the progress of society and the fact that the, the fact that there are people out there who are willing to say the things you shouldn't say which you know 50 years ago would have been 
men should be allowed to have sex with each other without being arrested by the police, right? That would have been unsayable in some... Or read about it. Or read about it or watch, look at pictures of it. People would have said, that's outrageous. Now it's completely and utterly commonsensical. Um, so it's so the danger, I think, of the kind of crushing, illiberal climate we find ourselves in, which I do think some of this offence archaeology expresses in a, in a particular way, although I don't disagree that people should own up, fess up to the crap they said in the past and they say that was the past now let me go on thank you very much but i think the downs the the, the devastating impact of that climate is that it creates what um some european sociologist whose name i forget now described as a spiral of silence so people just kind of descend into this spiral of silence and keep more and more of their opinions to themselves because they know that if they were to express them in public it could they could trip up or you know it's the tyranny of wisdom as mill referred to it so i i do think it, it has a very palpable this whole climate has a very palpable impact not only on people's feeling that they can say certain things but also on the daring nature of society itself the progressive nature of society progressive means something different in the UK than it means in America. I mean, the, the willingness of society to move forward, to become more liberal, to become more open. All those things are harmed if you indicate to daring thinkers that they had better watch themselves. I think there's a connection between what you just said and the reason the reason I knew you were in town this week. So could you talk a little bit about the event that you guys had and, and yes. what that was all about? So I, I, I'm in the U.S. for two things, really. Firstly, I was at the at LibertyCon in Washington, D.C., oh, okay. talking uh, with Nick Gillespie uh, from Reason about um, freedom and, and risky thinking and so on. And then the more important event, I'm sorry to say this, but I would because I'm from Spiked. The more important event is that Spiked organized an event in New York at the New York Law School. Um, a couple of days ago, on uh, and it was about hate speech. Mm -hmm. And we had Nadine Strossen, who former president of the ACLU, one of my heroes, um, and Paul Coleman from the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a more religiously inclined libertarian organization, um, and me. And the three of us were talking about the rise of hate speech legislation in Europe and the rise of the hate speech idea in the U.S., and how we think it has increasingly become a way to control not simply what we can all agree is hateful speech, like racist speech or Holocaust denial or whatever else, but simply unfashionable moral opinions, traditionalist religious opinions and so on. So one of the points I made at the discussion is that um, I, I don't use the term hate speech anymore. I think it's lost entirely lost its legitimacy. Hmm. I think hate speech, in, in my mind, now just means thought crime. And if you look at the European context where we've had um, in Sweden, a pastor was given a suspended prison sentence for describing homosexuality as a tumor on society. We've seen an Austrian woman who was arrested and convicted and fined for describing Muhammad as a pedophile. Mm. We've seen people uh, in the United Kingdom being arrested for posting gangster rap lyrics on their Instagram pages. All of those, I would argue, are legitimate forms of expression whether i agree with them or not mm -hmm. they are often expressions that come from a deeply held moral conviction and they are now being collapsed under the title of hate speech and are being punished in the courts or in the court of public opinion so i think so what we were trying to get at in this event and it was an incredibly lively event fantastic audience discussion was the nonsense of the idea of hate speech and the way in which that is now it, it, I think it's becoming increasingly clear 
that that's just an ideological invention that is used to demonize and punish opinions that mainstream society doesn't like. Have you seen a, uh, a, a correlation, a dovetailing, a relationship between the increase in that, and I presume it's an increase uh, uh, recently in, in Europe, and um, the uh, kind of populist uprising all over the continent. Like, do these do these things have a relationship? Are people using hate speech to try to make the populace go away? Is the, is the populism, in your view, at least partially a response to the betters telling people what they're allowed to express? Yeah. Absolutely. I think for years and years, for decades, in fact, Europe has had a culture of you can't say that. There are certain things you can't say. You can't criticize Islam too harshly. You can't criticize mass immigration. You can't be opposed to same-sex marriage. That was a, a big thing. And currently in the Netherlands, um, the, the public prosecutor in the Netherlands is investigating 250 Christian leaders who signed the Nashville Statement, which comes from the US, of course, which expresses um, opposition to same-sex marriage. So Christians in the Netherlands who have expressed public opposition to same-sex marriage are currently under investigation by the country's actual public prosecutor. I, I don't think that will go anywhere, but the fact that that's been instigated is absolutely horrifying. So for years, we've had this culture of you can't say that, and people have kind of not said it for the most part. I think the populist revolt is largely people saying, well, we can say that and mm. we're going to say it. So they are saying the things you're not supposed to say. So they are saying the European Union is a pile of crap. In the past, that was referred to as Europhobia. They are now saying mm. um, maybe mass immigration to Europe was done too rashly. Maybe it should have been more openly, democratically discussed. That traditionally was referred to as xenophobia, but now people are expressing that point of view. People are now saying why was that woman in Austria fined for calling Muhammad a paedophile? Or why are people in France being arrested for calling Islam a stupid religion, which has happened? Or why are people in the UK being suspended from their jobs for mocking Islam in videos on Twitter, which has also happened? That was traditionally referred to as Islamophobia, of course, and people are now increasingly saying, well, we think actually... The right to blaspheme is a hard-won liberty which took many centuries for us to secure hmm. and we're not going to throw it away just because we're living under a kind of PC technocratic regime. So I think a lot of the populist revolt is, is where people are actually starting to say the things you're not supposed to say. Now, of course, some of that will be people saying things that I also profoundly disagree with. Sure. Like Muslims are trash and there should be no immigration at all. And, um, you know, we must elect these kind of neo-Nazi parties into power. I think that's all completely... I'm opposed to all of that. Um, but I'm nonetheless happy about the fact that what we are witnessing in the populist revolt of the past three years is a situation where people are pushing back against those strictures and those that new form of censorship and this idea that politics and morality is best defined by a small section of society and the role of the rest of us is just to nod along. So I think there is a huge pushback against those kind of developments. I'm curious because there's a lot of uh, anti-Israeli sentiment across all of Europe and in the UK, um, but there's also a lot of um, a, a lot of times uh, anti-Israeli sentiment gets thrown into anti-hate uh, um, anti speech yeah. uh, legislation. It's definitely happening here in the States. Can you 
provide a little feedback on what's going on in the continent. And before you do that, Fisher, could you sharpen this up for me? Because you said anti-Israeli sentiment, mm-hmm. and I don't. There's uh, like yeah, anti-Semitism, sure. yeah, yeah, anti-Israeli sentiment, and there's yeah, a, there is a conflation as well good point. around that. Very good point. Because because there's legitimate criticism of the Israeli government, which I certainly partake in myself, um, and uh, there's also uh, kind of sentiment that Israel doesn't have a right to exist, um, which. I would even say is should be protected speech, mm-hmm. but I don't know that it's protected speech in Europe. <clears throat> well, Israel is a is a funny case in Europe because um, one of the problems of recent years is there has been a growth of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. in Europe, and um, it, it's it's simply an unavoidable fact that that is partly down to the large scale immigration from Muslim countries. Now, this is a very uncomfortable fact. Nobody wants to talk about mm. it. If you raise it, everyone says you're being anti-immigration and, and, and racist and I mean, so it's on. It's kind of logical. But it's logical. Right. And um, I say this as someone who is generally very pro-immigration. I'm the son of immigrants. I know how wonderful and beneficial immigration can be for individuals and for society. Where, but are, you, where are your people from? From the west of Ireland. Okay. Emigrate to the UK. How um, could you ever guess? <laughs> the name is a giveaway. Um, so, but it's but the anti-Semitism crisis in Europe is profound. Mm. I mean, for example, in places in Sweden, uh, huge numbers of Jews are leaving Sweden and moving to Israel, uh, as is their right, because of attacks on synagogues, attacks on individuals, and of course, we had the Delhi massacre in Paris a couple, uh, the day after the Charlie Hebdo massacre. Um, number of Jews have been uh, killed in in France and in Belgium and other places. So it's it's really horrendous. Um, my view is that uh, I completely agree with you. I think um, uh, criticism of Israel should be protected speech. I also think anti-Semitism should be free speech. But well, I'm yeah. a free mm-hmm. speech extremist. Um, I don't think there should be any laws banning people from denying the Holocaust, as there are in European countries such as Germany and uh, Austria. Mm-hmm. Switzerland. Uh, yeah, and I think people... And Armenian genocide. Denial. And that's right. Yeah. So that's coming. And, and people are trying to push for the criminalization of the denial of the Srebrenica genocide. So Jesus, it's really? moving on, and, which wow. would genuinely hamper historical debate. So uh, a lot of that is happening, and I'm against all of that. Um, at the same time, I'm very interested to discover why, particularly on the European left, there is such this, there's this ugly, visceral hostility to Israel, which very easily crosses the line into hostility towards Jewish people. And we see that, unfortunately, in Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, mm-hmm. which has a very pronounced anti-Semitism problem. Is it from the head down? Because you, you see him pretty routinely accused of being an anti-Semite in the American yeah. kind of at, right at, of center. And at the press. very least, you know, the, his associations <clears throat> with where he literally, you know, at public events in front of a microphone will say, we're introducing our friends from Hamas and Hezbollah. Yes. You know, we, we're not big on guilt by association, but if you are calling Hamas and Hezbollah your friends in mm-hmm. their charter mm-hmm. are certain very basic anti-Semitic sentiments you know, that are difficult to disassociate uh, yourself with. Yes, uh, I, I think... Uh, I would not call Corbyn an anti-Semite, but I do think he greenlights it in sometimes in a stupid, unwitting way. But I, I think this actually feeds into the broader discussion of identity politics. I mm-hmm. think Jewish people, not only in Europe, but also in the US, are kind of caught in this kind of pincer movement. Um, and the identitarian set is really unsure what to make of Jews. They, they can't decide if they are an oppressed people and therefore they're good 
or if they are enjoy white privilege and therefore they're evil incarnate. Sure. And so you see this with Sim- the, similar with a- Asian people as well. Yeah. yeah, and you see this with the women's march. The women's march has absolutely torn itself apart over how it relates to Jews. So you have some sections of the women's march who say, well, you know, they've got white privilege and therefore they're bad and Israel is obviously the worst nation that ever existed. So therefore we have to be suspicious of these people then you have the other side saying actually they suffered the greatest oppression in modern human history and therefore maybe they're on the other the good side i think uh, the anti-semitism we're seeing emerging in europe but also in some u.s circles as well actually springs um from the politics of identity because when you uh, split people off so um casually and also so uh, fatalistically Mm -hmm. into privileged groups or underprivileged groups, into good people or bad people, into uh, historical criminals or historical victims, then you create a game almost and everyone is just hoping against hope that they will be in the good group, they will be the underprivileged group, they will be in the, the nice group, they will be in the victim group. And and the one people who've suffered most from this pretty nasty, vindictive game of identitarian oppression Olympics are the Jews because mm. people don't know where they go. So I think a lot of the anti-Semitism in Europe actually springs from not necessarily the old far-right politics of anti-Semitism or not entirely from the new Islamist politics of anti-Semitism, but in large part from identity politics and its sectioning of sections of society into good and bad. Can I ask a question? I suppose to, to everyone, I mean, I, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and Israel in the context of, sort of U.S. politics more broadly is something that I'm, I'm interested in and I pay attention to, but I try to stay, I keep my distance a little bit because it's very easy to say the wrong thing and I don't want to say the wrong thing. I'm trying to practice perfection, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, but I can accept that not all lines are equally sharp. Um, but there's something about being critical of Israel where it is routinely, I've seen, turned directly into anti-Semitism. And I actually and wanted it, to show, sorry, you finish up. Yeah, but no, I, wanted, I wanted to follow up, yeah. Brandon, because I, I don't really, I, maybe my question wasn't clear, because I, I expect that you're probably more aware, you're certainly more aware of uh, what's going on with speech codes in the UK than mm-hmm. I am, but you might be also in Europe more broadly, uh, because people like Glenn Greenwald will say things like in both the UK and France, uh, legitimate public criticism of Israel becomes a hate crime. Yeah. Right. In, in yeah. your experience, um, is that true? That does happen. And I think there are there's a real danger among pro-Israel sections of society and lobby groups and, and certain people on the right to instantly rush to judgment and say, well, if you're criticizing Israel, you must be anti-Semitic, which I'm completely opposed but to. But does that the state judgment. come down on it? Is it a legal um, thing? No, not necessarily. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it went in that direction, but the state doesn't clamp down on it. I mean, the problem, of course, in Europe is that our hate speech laws are entirely subjective or, or, or in large part they are subjective. So, for example, in the United Kingdom, people never believe me when I say this, but it's absolutely true. Um, hate speech and hate crime is defined as uh, speech or criminal activity which any person, the victim or anyone else judges to have been motivated by hate incredible so for example if (laughs) you are a trans person and you're in you live in a house and and someone burns down your your shed in your garden right if you perceive that to have been a hate crime it's instantly recorded as a hate crime and furthermore the police regulations say that no 
pressure should be put on the person to provide evidence that it was hatefully motivated. So there's an entirely... So whenever you read statistics saying hate crime in the United Kingdom has rocketed up from, I don't know, this amount to this amount, you always have to bear in mind that we have an entirely subjective determination. So if I get slapped while I'm sitting on the tube... And if I phone the police and say, I think that person slapped me because I from, I'm from Irish descent, they have to believe me and they have to record it as a hate crime. And that will be added to the statistics. So the subjective nature of hate crime laws in the UK and other parts of Europe means that it's entirely feasible that at some point the state will clamp down on critical commentary about Israel because someone will perceive it maybe even rightly in some instances, they will perceive it as having been motivated by anti-Semitism and that will have to be taken as a legitimate point of view. So th- the potential for that to happen is there. Um, where I would differ from people like Greenwald and so on is that I think um, I think the, the true censorious dynamic in relation to the Israel-Palestinian conflict is often coming from the other side. It's often com- coming from the pro-Palestinian side particularly in Europe, where um, Israeli academics are banned from speaking on campuses, um, Israeli um, uh, theatre groups and artistic groups and so on that come to to perform in the United Kingdom are often shouted down and silenced because of the BDS movement, which doesn't encourage engagement between the West and Israel. Um, Anyone who tries to hold a pro-Israel discussion on a campus in the United Kingdom, 100% that that discussion will be invaded and screamed down and shouted down and closed down. So um, I think it, I, I do think the US is slightly different, but I think in the European context, the, the greater censorious dynamic comes from those who claim to be pro-Palestinian who want to shut down pro-Israel voices. But it is undoubtedly true that too many in the pro-Israel lobby are, are too quick to judge um, speech critical of Israel as being in essence anti-Semitic. It, it's interesting, and I, I suspect we all agree. In fact, I'm, I'm, I know for a fact that we all agree that in general we don't want to see speech prohibitions. Um, we don't want to see people told that it is legal to be able to say this dastardly thing. But certain dastardly things having the capacity to potentially lead to other worse real-world things, um, this, is, this is a fact that we can all, I think, subscribe to. Further... As you were pointing out earlier, Brendan, sentiments that are critical of Israel can easily, in some cases, sort of slip into anti-Semitism, mm. perhaps because of the kind, the constellation of associations that are there. For a lot of people, I suspect, it becomes defensible to try to erect some sort of legal barriers to try to fence people in to keep them from doing it. I, I think it's not unlike the calls for certain kinds of regulations related to online political speech related to uh, an election. Mm -hmm. And obviously with the recent um, Russian election meddling here in the States, and I I know that's been a thing um, in Europe as well, um, I get why people want to try to do something about this because they believe that the stakes are really high and they believe that they're is the potential for Alex Jones, bad actor, to spread this misinformation, misusing his free speech, um, and as a result, like have dastardly consequences. But obviously, like we all tend to 
I think, agree mm. that there probably shouldn't be anti-Infowars uh, law. I, I had that conversation on New Year's Eve at a party with exclusively with French people. Like I was having, <laughs> I was having a really good time with a bro. He's a photographer, you know, talking about this and that, journalism. We're doing really well. And uh, talking about what's going on in, in France, which uh, I, I hope to get some insight from Brendan on. Um, and he's like, yeah, well, that's the problem now with Facebook is that these people would just go on and they could say these hateful things, and then everyone you can't control who gets it, right. and they and they hear these hateful things, and then next thing you know, they're voting for the pen, uh, and that's why we need to have laws to prevent this. I'm like, oh damn it, I was hoping, I was <laughs> I was hoping not to have a libertarian conversation on New Year's Eve here. <laughs> well, actually, we think uh, it's hard. I mean, uh, in the, the, I my dodge was. I've been having this conversation with my wife, uh, you know, about the difference between American free speech and the French notion of free speech. And they, they are committed to free speech, too. I mean, it's the it's it is actually pretty like the the uh, the freedom uh, of religion are both like super fundamental to both of our revolutions and interpreted totally differently. And that's super interesting. Um, but uh, there is kind of a fundamental disconnect there, and it's hard to make them to, yes, you can access all these crazy-ass things and also things that aren't crazy-ass necessarily, but maybe you just disagree with them. Um, but that maybe not be, that that might not be the thing that's causing the thing that you don't like. Mm. Um, and And by having putting someone in charge of deciding and making these judgments is probably going to make that wor worse. And my, my, uh, example to him, and I'm sure it's one that, you know, well, is the, what's his name? Do you done, yeah. uh, the guy with who's doing the canal, uh, yeah. mm. uh, so like if you go ahead and make these kind of things illegal, these actions illegal, you will find people who will profit from going up to the line, crossing the line and, and they will build an audience and that audience might be filled with hateful people. Might be filled with people who just don't like being told what to do, right? Which is a pretty normal anti-authoritarian human instinct there, and you're creating it by like having these enlightened laws. But uh, I, I, absolutely right, and I think um, the Quinell is a very good example of that. So Dudon is a French comedian, and he's anti-Semitic, right? Yeah, he's, yeah. A Holocaust he's, a he's a Holocaust denier. He's a Holocaust particular, and he's <coughs> developed that, this... That's not the joke. Like, he's an actual he's Holocaust He actually denier. is. And, and a very popular comedian. Very popular, and he's created this thing called the Quenelle, which is like a Nazi salute, but a secret one. It's an inverted one. Because yeah. if you did the, the arm actual... Is down. If you did the actual salute, I think that's it's, a crime or... It's a crime. In, it's, in France. So he goes as far as you can go not... And when we get video on this thing, you guys <laughs> will see all it. see all the but, Nazi but, stuff you know, we're doing here. Uh, uh, Camille, I have no doubt that speech can do what you've just said it can cause difficult situations it yeah. can make people think things they shouldn't think um it can make people feel uncomfortable I, I i think words can wound i think one of the things that the politically correct lobby are right about is that words can wound we all know that from you know you read a you read a comment on an article calling you you know stupid effing whatever <laughs> that's that's not a pleasant experience so i don't doubt all of that but i've always thought that um Censorship is far more threatening to to public safety and to everyday safety than mm -hmm. than freedom of speech ever could be. And I think France is a good example of this because 25 years ago, France outlawed 
Holocaust denial. It banned it. You couldn't express those ideas in public. Now, 25 years later, France has an incredibly serious problem with anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. I think there is a relationship between those two things mm. because the more that you push these ideas underground... Secret knowledge. Right, yeah, yeah, they grow, they become attractive to people who want to be anti-authoritarian. So you, in France, you have these, particularly in Paris, you have these vast, huge um, immigrant ghettos um, who all of a sudden are not allowed to express themselves in, in any public way. So they kind of all start to it, 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 it kind of engage in Holocaust denial speech and ideas secretly hidden away, and they think it's really sexy and, and um, exotic to do something that's so anti-state, which is so illegal. And it just grows and grows and grows. And now, lo and behold, out of, out of every Western European country probably, France has the worst anti-Semitism problem. And I do think there's a relationship between those two things. I think the Charlie Hebdo massacre actually expresses it best of all. Um, the problem with the Charlie Hebdo massacre, that those two guys who killed those people at Charlie Hebdo, um, they grew up in a country, i.e. France, which constantly told them it was really bad if anyone ever criticised their religion. It was outrageous and potentially even illegal. Michel Welbeck, an incredibly well-known, provocative French novelist, was arrested in 2002 for calling Islam the most stupid religion on earth. Charlie this Hebdo... before he converted. <laughs> Charlie Hebdo itself had been taken to court for um, speech yeah. crimes against religion. So so who sent the signal to these two murderous mm. Islamists that, that it was... That it was justifiable to punish people who criticized their. Who sent them? It wasn't necessarily some finger wagging um, imam making videos on YouTube. It was their own society. Whether so, or not it, it influenced their decision, the, the direction, I mean, the arrow points in the same direction that we prohibit people from saying things. And yeah. at some point, they've said too much and we're going to have to take action. We may find them, we may put them in jail, or somebody may come along and stab you. I, uh, uh, yeah. I, I hear all the time in, in response to, well, you don't know what he meant, or maybe we shouldn't overreact here. He should have known better. Yeah. As, as the response. That's and right. It's, and, it's, and it's, it's, you know, the, it's almost like the justification for the Charlie Hebdo massacre was written by Western intellectuals themselves after the event. Hmm. I, I did a debate at Trinity College in Dublin um, a huge debate about free speech and the right to offend and Charlie Hebdo. And one of my opposing people made exactly that point, Camille, that he said, uh, well, if they hadn't have mocked Muhammad in this way, if they hadn't punched down at Islam, mm -hmm. we wouldn't have had this problem. And of course, the those people who complained about Penn America given the Courage Award to Charlie Those Hebdo. 200. 200 people. people, shame on all of them, who basically said, well, you know, the problem with Charlie Hebdo is that it mocks Islam and that's really bad. So, you know, what do they expect is going to happen to them? The, the Charlie Hebdo massacre was the militant wing of political correctness. That's mm. what it was. It was people saying, um, I feel offended. You have mocked my identity. You have mocked my religion. You have mocked my way of life. And therefore, I'm going to visit an extrajudicial punishment upon you. If we treat words as violence, we sanction the use of violence against words. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what happened with Charlie Hebdo. That's what happens on campuses where people get hounded and chased and screamed off if they are controversial. The more that we treat um, speech as an act of violence the more we legitimize violence against speech. And I think that's the danger of censorship. Censorship creates a situation in which people become so um, narcissistically convinced mm -hmm. that it is an outrage to offend them. 
It is an outrage to criticize them. It is an outrage to question any aspect of their belief system. You are greenlighting their becoming violent actors against anyone who criticizes them. So I've always argued, and I still hold to this view, that censorship causes far more, potentially causes far more violence than freedom of speech ever could. I was, so I watched at the, the behest of uh, my wife, Manuel, um, a couple nights ago, uh, the Vice interview with Luz, his name is, the, uh, the surviving yes. cartoonist yeah. at Charlie Hebdo. Mm. 10, 11 minutes, um, go seek it out. Uh, it was an interview done very, very soon after the massacre. He shouldn't have been giving interviews. And I think pretty soon after that, he stopped. But I'm glad that we have a snapshot of a damaged man um, but also someone who's who's trying to, uh, someone who works in the fields of expression and is trying to come to grips with all kinds of things, including I'm not going to let this thing um, turn me into this other person. And he had some very interesting things to say also about, you know, the horrific sight of seeing, you know, the, remember the march of all of the uh, arm locked uh, uh, authoritarians and, and also Western leaders and also Western authoritarians together saying that we were all Charlie, this is yep. fucking Saudi Arabian. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was, uh, it was a, uh, uh, which prince it was, but uh, uh, walking on this, and he has comments on this, all of, all of which uh, uh, underlines this. And I, I think that rewatching it, like, exhumed a lot yeah. of, of anger uh, in me about the way that everyone reacted to that, including um, uh, he talks about uh, about halfway through um, how disappointed, or not, it wasn't even disappointed, just soul-crushing it was to him to see... Uh, when the New York Times wrote about their first ash issue afterwards, which I have hanging up on, uh, near my desk, um, that has a, a picture of Muhammad uh, saying... Uh, it could be Muhammad. It could be Muhammad. They were, very, totally they were very clear about that. It, it, it could be <laughs> Muhammad, and also like his face looks like a dick, which is great, upside down. But uh, 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 but New York Times wouldn't print the image. It, mm -hmm. it didn't... An article about how uh, there's a new cover out in Charlie Hebdo and, and like people, it's controversial, but wouldn't print. And you could just sort of see, um, and, uh, and it, it re-reminded me of this whole idea of Je suis Charlie. Like, no the yeah. fuck you're not. And, yeah. You never were, yeah. and you're certainly not right now if you cannot engage in the, in the basic journalistic idea of like, hey, this is a controversial image. In order to tell you the story, I'm gonna show you the image. No, I'm too scared of getting firebombed. Yeah. And by that fear, expressing and being governed by that fear, who are you enabling? Who are you emboldening? People, oh, so it works? Yeah. Are you saying it works? Great. Mm stupid idea if you uh, you know uh, uh, behavior uh, that gets rewarded gets repeated yeah. in the classic words of Eugene Paul. It's like um, you know uh, it, it, it will shortly be the 30th anniversary of the Ayatollah Khomeini's fatwa against Salman Rushdie mm -hmm. um, in a few days time in fact and um, what's happened to Europe in particular in those 30 years is absolutely terrifying because what's become clear is that the Ayatollah has won. He has won the argument. His idea that it is wrong and punishable to mock Muhammad or criticize Islam is now a mainstream idea in European society. And it hadn't been. And it hadn't been. And that's why, you know, when a woman is arrested um, in Austria and convicted for calling Muhammad a pedophile, you think to yourself, okay, so Austria in that case is indistinguishable, morally indistinguishable from Pakistan, where Ezia Bibi, um, a Christian woman, was sentenced to death 
for allegedly mocking Muhammad. Her her sentence has now been uh, repealed and she's free to go and she's seeking asylum and so on. But the moral similarity between Austria and Pakistan is undeniable. Both countries punish people for mocking Muhammad. I was thinking recently that the, 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 the British police recently released, released a statement defining Islamophobia. And in their definition of Islamophobia, not only does it include... Um, direct harassment of Muslims, which we can all agree is a terrible thing and potentially a punishable thing if you are physically harassing a group of people. But it also includes any expression which says that Islam is inferior or too static or sexist. And it had this long list of things that you are not allowed to say without potentially being suspected of an Islamophobic hate speech crime. And I was thinking, this is the same police force, the Metropolitan Police in London. This is the same police force which for a short period of time after the fatwa against Salman Rushdie was charged with looking after Salman Rushdie and protecting him. And I was thinking, if that happened today, it's very possible they would actually question Salman Rushdie. It's very possible that they would actually arrest him. It's very possible that they would actually refuse to look after him and instead would interrogate him on the basis that he had said things about Islam, which they have since decreed, are an unacceptable thing to say. So the, the, so the terrible situation we find ourselves in is that great liberals like Salman Rushdie and the people who supported him back in 1989, their argument has actually, in some instances, withered away, apart from in studios like this one, whereas the opposing argument, which came from fucking Iran of all places, which is that it sometimes possible to punish people for criticizing Islam has become more and more mainstream. So the, the, the crisis of freedom of speech, the crisis of freedom of thought, the crisis of the right to blaspheme, which is a hard one right, is actually, I think, more profound than we sometimes appreciate. I wonder if we could speak to the actual risks uh, associated with being able to, to speak out. So it's, you know, there's, there's Charlie Hebdo, which we talked about a moment ago, but um, I'm remembering uh, we talked to Yasha Monk a couple of couple of weeks back. One of the things that he had in his book, there was a, and I don't think we talked about it when he was here, um, but he, there was a section where he was describing the invention of the printing press and really the printing press in the context of like someone like Martin Luther printing the 95 Thesis and nailing it to the church wall and or the church door, and there is an explosion of violence as a consequence of that. I mean, it there is. Uh, an overturning of the current order. Um, there is a rebellion, and it could not have been fomented but for this. But it's I mean, useful, directionally correct in terms of there being you know, greater individual liberty and autonomy. Um, and go further, and you find a guy like Elijah Lovejoy, who by the time he's getting his third printing press, I believe he had been forced to leave St. Louis and move to Illinois. He was uh, a religious leader who was also a journalist and was an early abolitionist, a super pragmatic abolitionist. I just got a copy of this thing. Uh, it's a book called The Martyrdom of Lovejoy, which was really hard for me to get, actually. Um, I found it on Amazon, and I sent it to this people called Bound Book Scanners, and they, they scanned the whole thing, so I have a digital copy of it now. It's just totally legal because it's in the public domain. They should sponsor it. I think, anyways. Yeah, I, I've <laughs> used them a bunch. I should get, like, a promo code. Um, and I'm reading this book now, um, and it's... There are two things about it that I think are really remarkable. I mean, one is the pragmatism that we talked about earlier, like that patient working with people who have dodgy ideas. Like Lovejoy became more radical 
as an abolitionist. Initially, he says, look, I understand slaveholders. You have your concerns. These, this is your livelihood. But you should also understand this. He's making a case to them in a way that suggests he wants to persuade them um, and, and really win the argument. Um, but the second thing is the powers that be that were skeptical of what Lovejoy was doing, they weren't wrong to be afraid. Like he was threatening the established political order. Um, he was potentially fomenting dangerous things. And I think there's something to be said for like the yellow vest protests that are taking place in France and the, the difficulty of trying to maintain order there. People have been injured, like protesters have been injured in very questionable ways by law enforcement. And there, there are calls for legislation that will require people to perhaps not cover their faces when they're out protesting. For a lot of people, these seem like practical compromises. You know, you have to respond with force to people who are throwing rocks. Well, if they didn't want to get hurt, they shouldn't have been out there. It's hard to contain some of the popular upset. It's hard to, to maintain order. That said, it's really important not to broach particular lines from the standpoint of the state. And restrictions on speech, however they manifest themselves, are incredibly dangerous for a lot of important reasons that might not always be appreciated when it seems to folks that, well, this might be dangerous. Mm. Um, therefore, we ought to do something about it. We have to, we can't allow anyone to use, you know, Facebook however they want. And we certainly can't allow you to protest while covering your face because in both cases, well, you could be a bad person. But, uh, absolutely. Uh, the thing is that heresy is essential to progress. It's mm -hmm. absolutely essential. Every single George Bernard Shaw made this point that every great truth begins as a blasphemy. Absolutely. Everything that we now take for granted, every every comfort and liberty we enjoy is the gift of people who are willing to be heretics or to speak in ways that you weren't supposed to speak. You know, going right back, even before Luther, in fact, although I think that's a key moment, but going back to the people before him who said, let's translate the Bible into English. Mm -hmm. That was absolutely a challenge radical. to yeah. ecclesiastical authority. And the, and it really was. I mean, they weren't the, the ecclesiastical authorities weren't lying when they said it was. Um, but the punishment of those people, the tearing out of their tongues or the branding of their cheeks Seems extreme. It was very <laughs> extreme and an outrage, of course. Um, uh, uh, but it speaks to how um, you know how in, how essential speech is to challenging authority mm -hmm. and to moving society onto another level. So when it comes to the gilets jaunes, I'm a huge fan of the gilets jaunes, um, the yellow vests. I know that they um, have taken direct forms of action but i think it's entirely justifiable and uh, what the the french state has done to them is horrific in fact you know at least 10 of them have lost an eye because the french riot police are fi firing these things called flash balls which are meant to be aimed at people's legs to um immobilize them they're firing them at the level of people's heads eight people have uh, 10 people have lost an eye some have lost limbs um around according to liberation newspaper at least uh, around 80 have had life-changing injuries. So uh, France is in the grip, essentially, of a civil war. No one really wants to call it that, but that's what's happening. But it's. It, but I think this goes back to what I was saying about libertarianism earlier on. I think it's... I keep thinking about this, and I said this to Nick Gillespie recently in a podcast interview that I've done with him f for my podcast. Um, 
I think it's possible that Brexit voters and the Gilets Jaunes have achieved more in, in two years in terms of denting technocracy, undermining the bureaucratic state, uh, challenging political correctness, um, making the case for the right of people to live freely and and happily without so much nose poking into their lives. I think it's possible that those vast swathes of people, 17.4 million in relation to Brexit, hundreds of thousands in relation to the Gilets Jaunes revolt, have done more to achieve those things than libertarian think tanks have in 30 years. So I'm really so one of the things I'm really interested in at the moment, and this is not to demean libertarians. Some of my best friends are libertarians. I'm a libertarian Marxist, as Matt reminded us. Um, we throw punches all the time. So that's that's all good, and they play an essential role in uh, constantly making the case for greater individual freedom, greater human freedom, and and moving the goalposts all the time. So as you say, Matt, that uh, smoking cannabis freely was seen as an outrage ten years ago. Now everyone accepts it. That's all great, but I sometimes think we underestimate the role that collectives can play. Collective groups of people, vast numbers of people coming together to say, well, fuck you, you know, we've had enough uh, and society has to improve and our lives have to improve and if they don't, there's going to be huge trouble. Is there a real philosophy behind the yellow vest though? There are. They've yeah. actually released... Um, statements and and lists of things that they demand um, and even more interestingly and I think this will be interesting for the whole of Europe it looks like some gilets jaunes are going to be standing in the European mm. elections uh, sh soon in a couple of months time so just like Macron they're inventing a party that's, this is the slightly that's worrying thing, about it, where it, it, when, the, when Occupy was a, was a thing for about three months here yeah. it never produced any candidates it never produced any policies so I'm, I'm curious to see if but the yellow vests actually will but the difference yes that's right and I, I really hope they are successful and if they were to take power in France at some point it would be the most exciting moment of our my political life but wow. I think the Occupy movement is really instructive here because if you remember, everyone loved the Occupy, by which I mean, you know, the celebrity class, kind of broadsheet columns. Yeah, I lived down they, the street. I wasn't a fan. They, no, <laughs> I, I, me neither. Mm. But, you know, they, they really got kind of political, cultural validation. They certainly in did. The, in the UK, in they sat outside St. Paul's Cathedral. We had Occupy St. Paul's for like six months. St. Paul's Cathedral is one of the most beautiful parts of London. These horrible, stinking tents were there. <laughs> camps for you know six months it yeah. was a real eyesore but the media loved them the political class loved them they were getting praised even all o the time even obama nodded to them despite the fact that they were critical of yeah him. so mm -hmm. that all happened but then when you get the brexit vote and the gilets jaunes um a few years down the line everyone is completely and utterly horrified even though they are obviously much larger movements there's a french sociologist whose name's like name i can't remember now but he made the point that um, French woke French celebrities support every single protest going, every single you know the Occupy movement, the kind of the women's march, all this stuff. As soon as the Gilets Jaunes went onto the street, they were completely silent. That's interesting. They were horrified. They couldn't understand this because what that represents, Paris has Paris has reverted to being an incredibly aristocratic almost city-state. It's incredibly expensive to live in Paris. They're now actually thinking about uh, uh, making people pay to go into Paris, which is a very kind of pre-modern thing. Um, and the Gilets Jaunes, of course, to the last man and woman, are people who don't live in Paris. Hmm. This is people from the periphery of French society who are storming the capital to say... Um, 
you know, you guys have forgotten about us. You don't care about us. You don't care about how poor we are. Uh, and we're going to make our voices heard. So there is, I think, something undeniably positive in that. That's not to say that it isn't given rise to violence and instability and 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 everything else. But there's something positive in that, even from the point of view of people like us who are very concerned about liberty and freedom and the right of people to live as they choose. I think all of the gilets jaunes and Brexit and everything else feeds into that agenda in a really interesting way. I think it's worth thinking about the, the, the blow that has been struck right now for the right of people to live their lives without having every single aspect of them micromanaged by technocrats and bureaucrats. And but not it, just uh, uh, by technocrats it, and bureaucrats, but by technocrats and bureaucrats who don't live in their country, Yes, which mm. is, yes. A, which is <laughs> That's right. a, a problem of democratic legitimacy regardless of whether you agree uh, with you know, gilets jaunes or Brexits uh, or the people who compose it, their ideologies or not, if some, you know, if Angela Merkel is dictating yeah. your country and you don't live in her country, be a little bit pissed off. <laughs> so, But the question I'd have, I mean, if the contrast is between, say, the, the impact of like the Milton Friedmans of the world, or maybe not Milton Friedmans, maybe I should make it an institution like a Reason Foundation, Reason Magazine. <laughs> Um, versus one of these movements, the particular ideas and values that are being presented by someone like Reason when they talk about sort of market liberalism and all those other things, it's not obvious to me that any of these recent populist mm. insurgencies share those values. In fact, their perception of what's wrong oftentimes is that those ideas are the problem. Yeah. And to the extent they're able to harness popular support for their program, their program generally includes all sorts of new, perhaps different regulations and new, perhaps different regulators and <clears throat> greater control over the economic system. And the net effect of that might be precisely the sort of micromanagement that we're concerned about whether or not they know it. That, that's a really important point because I, I, I definitely don't think Brexit voters and gilets jaunes are, are pro-free market. And in fact, one of their great criticisms would be that the ease of capital in modern Europe in particular, the, um, the replacement of manufacturing and, and older forms of economy with uh, finance and, and the, the, the move of finance across borders and so on, and, and in, Euro in the European context, the corresponding institutionalization of freedom of movement mm -hmm. so that workers can go from Poland and work for a company in the United Kingdom or whatever. It's always Poland. It's, it's always, always Poles. Yeah. <laughs> Love the Poles. Uh, they would definitely be critical of all of that, mm -hmm. which is why The Economist magazine loathes these people. Yeah. I mean, The Economist is so anti-Brexit, it's almost feverish. And they mm -hmm. also hate the gilets jaunes because they recognize there's an anti-capitalist element in these movements. So that's undeniable. I, I do think um, that these movements, however, would share some, if we're taking the Reason Foundation, great guys, I do think they would share some of their concerns about freedom of speech and freedom of association and the right of people to do what they want, but they would not share foreign policy, free, foreign policy, but they wouldn't mm -hmm. share the free market thing. But, but this is, this is one of the things I've been thinking about, which is such a large point. I don't even know if I can express it properly, but I think the, the populist movement is, is, is incredibly important. The populist movement that we've seen over the past three years in the U S as well as in, in mm -hmm. Europe, but mm -hmm. really in a pronounced way in Europe, it's kind of upending the entire nature 
of modern politics because the, the, the whole nature of the societies that we live in, both the United States, um, the United Kingdom, France, they're all largely built on a compromise over the value of democracy. So most of these nations, the UK, France, and the United, and the United States in particular, are born out of democratic revolts, which are then tempered by people who say, well, we can't have too much democracy. I mean, this goes right back to the English Revolution of the 1640s, which is the first one, and, and in my view, in my yeah, nationalist right. view, <laughs> the greatest one. We had a republic for 10 years. We cut off our king's head in 1647. Uh, we had a republic. We abolished the House of Lords. And it was like people power. Uh, but then there's the compromise comes in. Well, we need to temper that people power. We need to have checks and balances. And the exact same thing happens in France. The exact same thing happens in the United States. And what you have is the rise of these societies, which are very liberal for the most part, apart from blips here and there, but are quite suspicious of democracy and people power mm -hmm. and particularly direct democracy. I think what populism, the populist revolt, represents is an attempt to challenge that compromise to mm -hmm. challenge that historic mm -hmm. compromise and to say well maybe we need more direct people power maybe we need more democracy so that so camille i think you're absolutely right i think there is an aspect of these populist revolts which does challenge liberal the liberal outlook and the libertarian outlook mm -hmm. because libertarians are often quite instinctively suspicious of majoritarianism and collectives uh, not all libertarians but some they certainly I, are I'm, especially Camille. i'm deeply, so, deeply suspicious so <laughs> i think so there's an element where the populist revolt i think i'm not sure where it's going to go i think it's entirely unpredictable and it, it differs from country to country but i do think it represents a fairly historic reckoning with the compromise that was made in these nations hundreds of years ago which basically said, well, the people can have some say, but not too much. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and that's what's happening now. It dovetails with, and, and I, I'm not necessarily agreeing with that, but I think it's a fascinating uh, uh, thing to think about. Uh, it also dovetails with like the post-war order too, yes. right? That's yeah. also a compromise. Yes. It's a compromise of the U.S. will pretty much guarantee everyone's security for the most part. Like we're going to call the shots. You know, we, we, we might take... De Gaulle's view into account a little bit and maybe slap him across the face. Uh, but <clears throat> meanwhile, please be capitalist and not communist. Uh, we'll give you the money, have a free trade thing. So all these trade orders that were built up, um, which are by their definition anti-democratic, of course, because you're putting decision-making elsewhere, but you're erecting this uh, edifice, which is actually not that... Um, uh, uh, personnel heavy, um, and it, it contributes to constantly, constantly reducing global tariffs, which is a good thing. It's a good outcome there. Uh, generally speaking, the peace, uh, and, and you know, you'll argue over many individual uh, exceptions to this rule. Uh, generally speaking, all of this seemed to work out um, on kind of a, a global scale, but it was a trade, and I think a lot of people who were uh, in in favor of that and who lament the rise of the, the populist challenge to that order, and I would count myself in there, um, uh, have forever, and The Economist magazine is, is, is probably the crystallization of this, 
have forever just decided that the ends justify the means, that they haven't looked at how did we create these anti-democratic edifices? Mm -hmm. How did that, by doing this, did we create such a sense of pathological irresponsibility among entire populations and countries Mm -hmm. for the conduct of world affairs? Mm -hmm. I mean, why do you think that conspiracy theory uh, about American foreign policy is so advanced in countries like France? Because the the fuck does France control, right? They're, they're not in charge of anything. You know, ultimately, uh, less so now, but ultimately it's kind of the U.S. who does this. And so it was a devil's bargain. It really was. And and I wish that in this time of this reckoning and this conflict that the people, and again, this is my people more than any, anything else, who are on the side of those institutions recognize the fundamental flaw within those institutions and the flaw, the idea of the institution, which is that you got to check in with the people. Uh, I really agree with that, and but uh, but I I would go slightly further. I I want to spend the next year encouraging libertarians to see that um, restrictions on the free market are a price worth paying in defence of freedom of speech and democracy. Here it because comes. the thing is, because I think uh, I'm not sure libertarianism is quite prepared for what's about to come. Not only in relation to the gilets jaunes and Brexit and the kind of populist democratic revolt, which definitely, definitely has mm-hmm, a kind mm-hmm, of anti-capitalist mm-hmm, component mm-hmm. to it, but even on issues like the um, outsourcing of censorship to corporate organizations. And this is a pronounced problem, particularly in the United Kingdom right now, uh, but it's going to spread, where, you know, the state still censors people, right? And in in the UK recently, we've had the uh, two um, rappers have been given a suspended prison sentence for for rapping. So it's an absolute outrage. But these are these are these are British rappers, though. British rappers, yeah. But, so they're trash. So it's, <laughs> like, seriously, <laughs> like, is it Stormy? Is the no, one guy that's over there? Stormzy. Is that who it? Is Stormzy? Please, you're not I'm allowed sorry. to criticize Stormzy. He's a Sto- national treasure. No, I know. He's a national I didn't treasure. Even, in I, I inadvertently <laughs> screwed that up. I was thinking about Kylie Jenner's kid. I guess. But it's it's not Stormzy. It's it's drill artists who are this kind uh, of super underground. Um, uh, pro-crime kind of rap. They stole um, that from Chicago. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, we steal everything from the US. But yeah. the thing is, um, the, the, the point is that I think censorship is increasingly being outsourced from the state to corporates. And we can see this with the way in which social media, um, Silicon Valley giants are increasingly being called upon by activists and politicians, in fact, in the United Kingdom case, where politicians have called Silicon Valley uh, directors to the Houses of Commons. They've done it here too. Right, to say to them, why the hell aren't you censoring more stuff? Um, Now, I've had a number of arguments with libertarians, admittedly on the edge, on the kind of more extreme side. I did a debate with... um, Yaron Brook from the Ayn Rand Institute in London recently, and it was a really fascinating debate on the question of does Facebook have the right to censor people? Hmm. And in many ways, I think that's one of the most fundamental questions of our time, funnily enough, because the question then becomes what's more important, Facebook's property rights mm-hmm. or Facebook's billions of users' free speech rights? And um, I'm not sure that libertarians are prepared for that discussion. Because, I'm, I'm super prepared for that discussion. Well, that's great, <laughs> because I think sometimes libertarian. I keep saying libertarianism is a bad thing. It, it's it, can I just say it's not a bad thing? It it's, could be it's a bad thing. It's far better <laughs> to be a libertarian 
than just about any yeah. other political creed. So yeah. that's great. Even Marxist? Even, <laughs> well, Marx is libertarian is the best of all. Yeah. Uh, so that's great. It's great to be libertarian, but I want, but I, but I, I keep, and this came up at our debate at the New York Law School yeah. in, in this, this week. Um, the question of uh, whether it's okay mm -hmm. for private companies to assert their property rights and throw people off because they're saying bad things. We don't have to open up the whole debate related to this, but what does it mean to have a right to free speech? Is your right to free speech to come inside of my house and say whatever you'd like? Is your right to free speech to stand on the sidewalk and say whatever you'd like? Is your right to free speech to <laughs> say whatever you'd like when you work for me inside of my office and I'm paying you money? Um, or when you're using my free service that I provide to you, the right to free speech is we're prohibiting the state from interfering with your ability to say things. And when we make the right broader than that, there's all of these weird contradictions that get invented. And for me, like all rights are property rights and we have to respect them all and appreciate the places where they bump into one another. And if you're not defending that, then the whole order could topple over pretty quickly and you might not even notice it. Oh my God, I'm agitating to get in on this because yeah. um, Yaron Brook in my debate in London made the exact same point where he said to me, um, would you allow someone to come into your house yeah. and say whatever they want? And, and I said to him, look, my house is different to Facebook because my house contains a very small number of people. Facebook has billions of users mm -hmm. now uh, the thing that i'm always reminded of is that there was and, and i'm going to be i'm going to forget the name of it but there was a supreme court case in the united states about 50 or 60 years ago where there was one of those corporation towns you know towns that are built entirely to do a particular mm -hmm. form of work for a company so they're built by a mm -hmm. private company to uh, to house employees and one of the employees was distributing <clears throat> religious leaflets. I think it was Jehovah's Witness, but they were distributing religious leaflets. And the the the, org, the company said, you can't do that. This is a private town. Uh, First Amendment rights don't apply here. The Supreme Court ruled that when a private company or a private organization is, is so large that it could be perceived as a public space or is so all-encompassing in an individual's life or a community's life that it is the sphere in which they express themselves, mm -hmm. it is legitimate to expect them Ideally, you wouldn't have the government beating them over the head all the time to make them do it, but it is legitimate to expect them to afford people the same rights that they would enjoy in a public space. I think that argument applies brilliantly to social media companies because social media companies now are the new public square. This is the mean, This is the uh, forum in which politicians express themselves, in mm -hmm. which people engage in debate, in which people say what they want to say, in which people have a, have a real genuine palpable... Uh, impact on public life for people to be expelled from those forums because for example like megan murphy they don't think men can become women on twitter if you deny that men can become women you can be thrown off twitter mm -hmm. so that's a very so now one argument is that twitter is exercising its property rights Mm -hmm. Another argument, which I find more convincing, is that Twitter has bought into an incredibly restrictive moral view of the gender debate and is punishing people in a palpable way by expelling them from the public square for dissenting from that moral view. So I think the question for libertarians becomes, 
um, are we willing to say, well, Twitter's property rights should play second fiddle to Twitter's users' rights to express views that Twitter doesn't like? Candidly, I mean, I just think the case was wrongly decided. It doesn't matter how large the company is. It's not the country. It is disruptive for anyone to lose their job, generally speaking. If you don't have a huge nest egg, you lose your job because something happened there. They didn't like the way you looked a particular day or smelled. This is going to be disruptive for you, and you might have to move someplace else to find a new job. If you're using Facebook and you violate their terms of service, um, and it could be consequential if they kick you off, but yes, someone else could make another Facebook. Like someone else could make another MySpace. But they're already limited. Like So I, Facebook cannot sack some cannot cannot sack a person because they're black or chinese I, and i agree with you and i would say that so that's I would a limitation that those, on their property rights. and i would say that those limitations are are problematic for me as well i think that's the problem what what happens is we begin with sort of the first quote unquote essential limits and restrictions on people's rights and it gets so much easier to the to do the second and the third and the fourth and then you've got a canon of all sorts of restrictions that are absolutely essential if we're going to have a good and decent society. Well, you can't fire people because they're black. You can't fire people because they're too fat. You can't fire people because they're talking about sex at the office. No, actually, you can fire people because they're talking about sex at the office. It's a bizarre patchwork. Sure, it's messy if we're not trying to prohibit all of the really awful things that we don't like and some of the things that we prefer not to have happen. But it might be the best option to simply have companies competing and in an organic way have some sort of baseline emergent set of precepts that most of us agree to and share. Because in 2019, as hard as it is for us to believe, for example, that someone at two o'clock in the morning gets like clobbered and clubbed in the head and drug off by racists because we live in a far less racist society than we did historically. I don't think that's because we made it illegal mm. to fire people for being black. I don't think any company in America, generally speaking, like is going to adopt a policy of firing people who are black. Yeah. If in fact we allowed that tomorrow, and the reason is because they'd go out of business quickly. I completely, right? I completely agree, and I, I've made a very similar argument in the United Kingdom context. The reason racism has declined in the United Kingdom to a massive extent is not because we brought in public order offences, which made it illegal to express racist views in public, or made it illegal for companies to judge people on the basis of race. I, and that argument is made that mm -hmm. it's only thanks to the law that uh, Britain is a less racist society, and I don't buy that at all. Mm -hmm. It's it's bound up, I think, with the way in which people develop their thinking, the way in which people mix with other people from other races, uh, the, the role of activism, marching in the streets, black and white, unite and fight was the slogan of um, left-wing movements and so on. So mm -hmm. all of that played a far more important role, I think. But my point in relation to... But th this is the thing. I, I'm not a free market fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. Um... um I also do not trust the state to organize economic life because we live under states which are useless and rubbish. And, and the British context is very instructive here. We have a national health service. I actually think the idea of universal health care provided by society is not a bad idea. And I bristle at Americans who tell me it's the beginnings of Marxism. And I want to say to them, <laughs> it's not. 
Marxist, and you don't know what Marxism is, but I have that <laughs> argument with Americans all the time. Um, but we have an NHS system, which is one of the largest employers in Europe, mm -hmm. employs an, an eye-swiveling number of people, uh, has an, a massive amount of investment, and it's still rubbish. Mm -hmm. For you know, It still takes me three days to get an appointment with my general practitioner doctor so that I have to instead phone a private general practitioner on Harley Street and book an appointment that cost me £75 mm -hmm. because it's quicker and easier and I'll get it that same day. So, so I don't trust the state to run things. All I'm saying is that there are surely circumstances, particularly related to expression, where it is legitimate to curtail corporate power in the same way that we would seek to curtail state power. So this, so if we go back, so I, I actually really disagree with the idea, which I hear from many people on the left and the right, in fact, that censorship is only a phenomenon that the state can enact. It's only censorship if the state is doing it. I actually disagree with that because, and that's one of the points John Stuart Mill makes in, in On Liberty. Mm -hmm. He says that in many ways, um, state censorship, however however brutal it might be, is not the worst form of censorship. Even worse is is the tyranny of custom. This idea that y you have to think a certain way because if you don't, you'll be ousted from polite society. Or y there are certain views you should hold in because if you express them, you'll be in big trouble. And it's not um, legally defined. It's not written on paper. You could easily say to people, snap out of it and say what you want to say. You can do all those things. But regardless of that, there is a palpable sense among ordinary people and many people that there are certain things they shouldn't say because they'll be punished if mm -hmm. they do. That's very unhealthy. And so so I think, so the, the reason I'm making that point is because I think it's, it, it's correct to say that censorship is not simply something enacted by the state, but can also be encouraged and, and, in, and in fact enacted by other powerful sections of society who sure. don't necessarily have the right to put you in jail for say, saying something, but do have the right to make you lose your job for saying something or to oust you from the public square or to deprive you of the oxygen of publicity, which was Thatcher's great phrase when she was justifying the banning of Sinn Féin, the mm -hmm, Irish Republican mm -hmm. Party, who weren't allowed to speak on the airwaves with her own voice. So we had this really bizarre situation where Jerry Adams, president of Sinn Féin, would be interviewed on the news, but his voice would be dubbed in by an actor. Oh and it Al was absolutely and um the yeah. day the day to day, which was a great Chris Morris satirical show in in the um in the nineteen nineties, did a great satire of it where they would have Sinn Fein representatives on and they had to um suck in from a helium balloon before <laughs> they spoke and then speak in a very high pitched voice. That's incredible. So it was hilarious. You should look it up on YouTube. So uh so, uh, uh, but I think the, the deprivation of the oxygen of publicity, mm -hmm. as Thatcher put it, mm -hmm. which is a really sinister phrase, mm. is not simply something that's enacted by the state. And increasingly so mm -hmm. in this era in which, for good or ill, so much of public discussion and public debate and public expression is now overseen by corporates. Allow me to, uh, to triangulate between the two of you for a second, which is that I think it's a useful... Um, I never know what this word means, but I'm going to use it because it sounds like what people say at this point. Oh, this it's a useful heuristic. Okay. I thought it's heuristic. I don't fucking well, let's, know. Let's find, <laughs> out if, let's find out if he's uh, used it properly. Uh, I haven't. <laughs> Keep uh, going. To uh, think in terms of not just uh, the property rights version of free speech, uh -huh. uh, but the culture of free speech, which I think yeah. kind of like lands in, be in, in between the two oh, of Ken you. Ken White is not listening. Um, oh, 
Right. Uh, I, I disagree with Kim White about this. I mm-hmm. think I think there there is an a, an absolute the, the, there is a culture of free speech that we can uh, fight for uh, if if we're so inclined and ask for the expansion of it. Like it's not, New York Times doesn't want to print a picture of a statue of Muhammad that was on the courthouse in downtown. Uh, Manhattan, Lower Manhattan, uh, for 50 years in a story about that statue and mm-hmm. its removal. Um, yeah, it's their property right not to do it, but they're fucking pussies. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> we we can say that that is fucking weak, yeah. dude. Yeah. Um, and you are not expanding the zone of free speech, you free speech moralists. While you're doing this, you're actually giving in to the heckler's veto here, right. and it sucks. Yeah, right. Property rights, fine. But like, no, culture of free speech, not fine. So I think there's a culture of free speech argument about Facebook and Twitter and uh, Instagram, God knows what else these days, are kind of caving in to mostly, I think, left of center uh, complaints about uh, uh, their practices with the people who use them and kicking people off. Um, and to say, hey, look, that's that's culturally wrong. You, you have these platforms that... The thing that makes it great is that it's universality. It's not uh, your selection of who can and can't talk, and you can make that point constantly. But at the same time, <clears throat> I think it's also worthwhile to point out a separate thing, which is that um, I think that once there's, there's some kind of universal law that's at play here, once a platform gets big enough, um, people want to start treating it like a utility. And that's, the I think, the danger in your approach, which is that I think the left is already started, and, and sorry for the uh, the overgeneralizations, but I, mm-hmm. I think that there has been a sense of let's treat Facebook like it's an inevitable thing of existence. I'm glad that you brought up MySpace because MySpace used to be that mm-hmm. 15 years ago, and it totally isn't now. And one of the reasons, because think about what happens to utilities. Utilities are things that government said is so important and they they have so much reach that we have to give them incredibly onerous rules, mm. which then <clears throat> perpetuate their existence forever. Utilities never go away. Mm-hmm. I wish they would go away. They all suck. No one likes yeah. utilities. They provide really bad service. We tell them what to do. We grant them local monopolies. They get in on the game. It becomes a big mess. All right. So, um, so it started off, I think, uh, with Facebook and, and Twitter and uh, other places, mostly on the left, treating these things like utilities. I think the right is now getting in the game. Mm-hmm. It's Tucker Carlson talks about this constantly. Diamond and Silk having uh, their congressional hearings. <laughs> my God. <laughs> um, and so I think it's it's now a bipartisan thing in the United States. Yeah. I'm oh, like, yeah. let's tell Facebook yeah. what to do. So you're going to perpetuate Facebook's existence. Rather than because Facebook sucks as a company, it sucks as a user experience. It just Zuckerberg is not a human. I've got good friends at Facebook and investors in uh, in FreeThink. I've definitely invested in Facebook and made a lot of money. Sorry about all of that. Um, (laughs) uh, It's it's U.S. usage is is plummeting, but but it's it's still huge. And European Union too. It's been flat for the last eighteen months in both places. So like. Uh, if we take the utility approach or more of a utility approach towards them and saying that we need to create these rules under which they can um, uh, navigate these three billion people, whoever whatever is the global number of it, <laughs> I fear that they don't go away because I want them to go away eventually. But, but uh, I, I don't disagree with that, in fact. And I, I, I actually think that 
I would be incredibly reluctant to ask the government to create rules to defend freedom of speech on social media, primarily because I don't trust the government as far as I could throw it mm-hmm. when it comes to freedom of speech. Yeah. And in fact, one of the things, one of the disagreements I've I've had with with libertarians recently is that I I sometimes think that their their desire to kind of insulate individual rights from the majority or from the democratic process is often driven, in my view, by a kind of um, defensiveness or even cowardice or a fear that they are incapable of convincing the public how important these guilty as charged are, right so i so i do think so i i actually worry about first amendment activism sometimes i kind of envy the first amendment because we don't have it in the united kingdom mm-hmm. but i also worry that it becomes a very simplistic way to strike down censorship in a constitutional fashion without yeah. needing to convince people and win people over well I, but, I try to make the sophisticated argument it's just not popular it's not popular but but, but it can <laughs> but it's be great made it's great popular. to have a point of view like yours of somebody who is sympathetic and and kind of like you said envious of yeah. of the having first amendment protections but seeing the flaws I think in it, the overall application just think, a, a quick insert Barry Friedman uh, wrote a book 10 years ago or so uh, whose name is, escapes me, but he uh, posited that uh, that you can only have a lag between Supreme Court opinion and public opinion for so much. The, the Supreme Court's not going to get that far out. Right now, the Supreme Court in the, in the U.S. has a huge, strong free speech protection. Mm. Meanwhile, the public is going in the opposite direction. The will of the people. The but will see, of the people. This is that, where... that is ultimately untenable. I'm happy about the Supreme Court thing, but I'm not happy about... The, the the public thing, and that's why we try to make these arguments constantly. But, but the, yes, exactly right. The, because the will of the people can be changed through engagement and and discussion and so on. But but Matt, I think you're absolutely right about the culture of uh, freedom of speech, and I'm I'm sure I've used that phrase, or certainly I'm going to steal it from you, <laughs> because I I I really agree with that. I I would I would not like um, the government to burst into Facebook's offices and force them to stop banning people. That would be an undesirable situation. Um, Jeffrey Rosen at the National Constitutional Center in Philadelphia, Mm. I did a discussion with him recently uh, a few years ago on um, uh, censorship on social media, and he was making the point, well, do, do you want these American corporations to force countries like Saudi Arabia or Pakistan or wherever else to 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 allow people to say things that those countries think they shouldn't say and that's a really buttonholing question because on the one hand you want to say yeah let people in Saudi Arabia say whatever they want or mm-hmm. let people in Pakistan say whatever they want but then you are also implicitly calling on American corporate power to override national sovereignty overseas so it raises all sorts of fascinating and disturbing questions um but i but i agree with you i think the preferable option to all of this is to constantly um build up and emphasize and and fortify the culture of freedom of speech so that hopefully we won't be in a situation where as you say largely left of center activists are demanding the expulsion of people from facebook and facebook is kind of going along with it because that's what they do so i i would definitely emphasize the fortification of the culture of freedom of speech but i do think that but my general point would be that even without that or or as we are doing that i think it is worth acknowledging that corporate power can be as restrictive a freedom of speech as state power. Um, now, the question then becomes what you do about it. With a state, it's easy. You oppose it or you say the First Amendment forbids that, so stop it. 
With corporate power, it's a more difficult question. Well, what do you, uh, but the word as is, is I think, a bit problematic because the because Facebook can't throw me to jail or shoot you in the face. Yeah, that's that, that's a that's Which not a, they, an insignificant uh, and that's for me. That's the whole that's the whole ball game. To the extent no one is pulling out guns, to the extent there's not even the implicit threat of violence underlying my desire to try to compel you to do things um, and your desire to try to resist me, um, then, you know, I, I stay out of it. But once the guns get involved, but like you, once, but who, once you might but, go to prison and who or get has, shot trying to resist arrest, that's a problem. But who has you, but if you look, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I would ask who has used guns in the European context in relation to speech has not been the state. It's been non-state actors and it's been mm -hmm. non-state actors uh, goaded along precisely by what you're talking about, Matt, which is the um, uh, disrespect for the culture of freedom. And the disrespect for the culture of freedom, which crosses the board, it's, right. it's the state, it's corporations, it's society at large, it's civil society. The disrespect for the culture of freedom can create a situation where guns do come into play mm -hmm. and people have been executed in Europe yeah. for what they say, but not by the state. The state hasn't done that for 350 years but by non-state actors goaded on by a culture which says that offensiveness is the worst thing that can happen to you, freedom of speech is, uh, is, is dangerous, hate speech should not be allowed. So I, I think we have to factor in, I guess what I'm saying is that if we obsess too much on the role of the state in relation to censorship, we might miss the denigration of the culture of freedom of speech that comes not only from the state, but also from corporate power, also from civil society, also from um, left-wing activists, mm -hmm. all of which contribute to a culture in which it's just presumed that to have freedom of speech is a problem and in which it's presumed that punishing people who say bad or offensive things is acceptable. Pretty much agree with that. I don't fully, but I'm not going <laughs> to disagree now. <laughs> but I, I love the conversation. We've been going for almost two hours, I think. Yeah, um, did you gentlemen have anything else that you wanted to mention quickly? Good. Brennan, good. Any good. important updates um, related to you, related to stuff <coughs> that you're working on or stuff that's upcoming? Just Brexit. What's I'm the name of your podcast fighting. so people can find it? My podcast is called The Brendan O'Neill Show. Which is incredibly embarrassing. <laughs> um, the spectacular, splendiferous <laughs> yeah. Brendan O'Neill show. And uh, you can find it on all the usual podcast channels. It's actually really exciting. It's, it's a monthly podcast. Everyone keeps mocking me for having such an infrequent podcast. I think that's perfect. Uh, but yeah, I think it's great. perfect. But yeah. I'm, under, I'm under pressure from staff at Spiked to make it fortnightly. So we're going to do that soon. But it's you just want to say fortnightly. That's <laughs> well, uh, the we, reason I don't, I don't want us to commit to doing it every single week is at some point. I mean, it's quality over quantity. Mm -hmm, you sure. know, yeah. and it can get yep. exhausting. It can get monotonous. We actually have kind of coined the term almost weekly. It's been kind of <laughs> not, did we? Yeah, did we do that? No, honestly, we, I heard uh, Nancy Rollman's uh, Me Neither podcast, which oh, is going to drive I her. Have, actually, I did hear her say that too. And when I heard it, I was like, her, Whoa, <laughs> her husband's seriously out of business. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, I, Almost, almost oh. But my, my only point, and I wanted to build off of what Brendan was saying before when he briefly mentioned the, the upcoming 30th anniversary of the horrific Salman Rushdie fatwa, uh, is that um, at the time, even at that time, which was a much less political, quote unquote, politically correct, hate the term, but let's just use it. It was a much less politically correct time. It was actually difficult for Salman Rushdie to have people uh, among the Western literary uh, community 
uh, and the, the you know intellectual community writ large to stick up for him. It was yeah. a big deal it's when true. people did. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would encourage people to look up a, a Christopher Hitchens column from Vanity Fair uh, before he died in 2011, obviously, uh, where he names names of people who did not stick up for Salman Rushdie in the time and who actually made it a point to say, why were you poking the bear? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah and, and Hitchens locates this as kind of his transformation or his aha moment in where things went wrong in modern politics and political discourse mm. and where his own trajectory of his politics uh, went. Hmm. It's absolutely right. I think even back then, people weren't willing to line up behind Salman Rushdie in the way you, that you would like John Le Carre. I mean, serious, I mean, serious yeah. people. Um, another, uh, and it was a turning point moment for a lot of people. Another huge turning point moment for people in Europe was obviously the Charlie Hebdo massacre, but also the murder of Theo van Gogh in the Netherlands right. mm -hmm. um, uh, by an Islamist. Um, and I was recently in the Netherlands and met a load of people who had either been friends or colleagues of Theo van Gogh who have completely come around to a way of thinking which says, well, the left has abandoned freedom of speech. Um, the, the reluctance to challenge Islamist thinking is a serious problem. Mm -hmm. And the, the challenge of defending freedom of speech, even where it offends, is the great challenge of our time. So there are quite a few people out there, hopefully listening to this, mm -hmm. who recognise that um, freedom of speech is the greatest tool human beings have for expressing themselves and for protecting themselves and from guarding themselves from the excesses of the state or the threat of other people. And I think the more people realize that, uh, the better. And and hopefully the 30th anniversary of the outrageous fatwa against Salman Rushdie will mm -hmm. be a useful point at which we can talk about how essential freedom of speech is. See, this It's so weird. It's so weird that when you say that, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, right. That's exactly why we can't let anybody tell Facebook who they can have. <laughs> That's why. Because it's the cornerstone. You can't mess with it. it my 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 philosophical radicalism, because I'm uh, politically, I'm pragmatic. I could have a conversation about this candidate I don't fully agree with. But my philosophical radicalism is is born out of a desire to make the hard, rigid argument that is going to be just brutally uncompromising because I want you to get the key idea on offer, which is precisely why I think if you don't like niggas and you don't want them working for you, you just got, you going to fire them. I say, that's your right, sir. That's your right. And I stand on that ground because I think it makes it much easier to argue about rights in sort of a fundamentalist, incontrovertible undeniable, inviolable, God-given, ordained thing if it's not this, this thing that's been kind of legislated around and curtailed and, and, and there's crochet. and Yeah, but for that one odd exception, it, it just – it's so easy for it to slip away from you. It's so easy to go from thinking, Macron, God, I want, I want him to be our president. God, if only he was the guy. And then, you know, the police are kind of roughing up some protesters. And he's still handsome, and he's still he's still the guy. He's still got all the trappings uh, of of something nice. It's all the same. It's all power. It's all power in in conflict with individual liberty. Um, and you know the groups are nice, but I'm I'm me. They're my rights, and not all of ours collectively. They're mine. Mm. Leave me alone, and leave my stuff alone, and I'll do the same for you. That's mm. what that's all I want. And then if I want something from you, I'll give you some of my stuff. If you like the terms, you give me some of your stuff. 
we're good. This message brought to you by Camille 2020. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not exclusively. Right. Yeah. Can I say one more thing? Yeah. I hate to say something after that passionate uh, it's, speech. It was kind of fucked up. I'm a little but drunk. I just want to say that um, I would argue that individual rights are best protected by creating more and more networks of solidarity. True. And and I think that one mistake that libertarians make implicitly, I don't think they mean to make this, and I speak for all of us when I say this, is that their suspicion of majoritarianism means that they unwittingly fall back on either the government or constitutionalism to protect freedom, which I think is a mistake because the government and constitutionalism are not the greatest friends of freedom, whereas you might find very, very good friends of freedom out there in the public among people who aren't particularly well-educated, who do, who might not be as well-connected as people like us are, but who actually value the right to live their lives as they see fit. Mm-hmm. So I, I would always say, I think the, the danger with the modern left is that they oversize, they overemphasize collectivity at the expense of the right of the individuals. Mm-hmm. The danger of the libertarian right is that they, they overemphasize the right of individuals at the expense of the idea of collectivity. I think speaking to what you've just said, Matt, about maybe um, striking a middle ground, mm-hmm. it's very possible that both of those things are protected by each other. Mm-hmm. The right of the individual is best protected by solidarity networks in society and society itself becomes a more fruitful, stronger and ambitious place the more that it has free thinking individuals in it. So I would argue against seeing a contradiction between those two things. I, I don't disagree with that i want to i want to cultivate a tribe of radical people who have my same nutty politics (laughs) um, or at least something tangentially close to it um this has been wonderful i've enjoyed it um i hope everyone else has has enjoyed their time here brendan i'm so glad that we made this whole thing awesome thank you so much um late bye We, we, we know of new methods of attack the trojan horse